You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Let's say it one more. He is risen. Amen. It is so good to see you. If uh, you're just joining us, my name is Shay Sumlin. I am... um, I am one of the pastors here at Northway, and I'm so grateful to be with you here this uh, Easter morning, and for guests that are among us, just so glad you've chosen to join us. We are, this morning, getting the unspeakable privilege of celebrating the most meaningful, most significant, most joyful event that has ever occurred in human history. We are joining not only with all the saints around the world today, this Sunday morning, but all the saints throughout church history in celebrating our risen, resurrected God and King Jesus Christ from the dead. In doing so, this morning, I want to to look at a text here in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there. you don't have one, there should be one under a seat somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you, by the way. But John chapter 20, I want to consider the resurrected Christ through the lens of one of the most famously labeled skeptics in our Bible, none other than doubting Thomas himself. John chapter 20, I'm going to pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I like that. That was good. Well, a little background on this text. What has just happened prior to verse 24, Jesus has risen from the grave that Sunday morning as witnessed by the women who ran to the tomb and saw that the tomb was empty. He appeared to them. He then appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. We're told that he appeared over 500 in Jerusalem over the next 40 days. But this morning he had appeared, yet despite these These testimonies from eyewitnesses, the disciples themselves disbelieved. We were told in Luke's gospel, they thought it was just an idle tale. They were not expecting the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. And so here they are gathered in a locked room 
and fearing their own lives that what happened to Jesus may happen to them. And Jesus himself, the risen Lord, appears to them miraculously in this room and they believe. And as we see in the verses preceding verse 24, they are glad. They are overwhelmed with joy that their savior did not die on that cross, though he did, he rose. He didn't stay dead. He conquered death and appears to them. And now John lets us know in verse 24, he does a little bit of roll call and lets us know that there is actually one disciple that was missing in that room that Easter morning, that resurrection morning. It was Thomas. Now we're not told by John why Thomas wasn't there, but we can see from this text and others that he was clearly having a hard time with Jesus's death and clearly did not expect nor believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. And, uh, and it's interesting because when we consider his disbelief, it's no different than our own. It's not like our disbelief in the, first, in the 21st century is any different then. And we tend to think that the disciples are pretty gullible maybe in the first century. We're more reasoned people today. We have more calculated disbelief than they did, but it's simply not true. I mean, this is a man who walked for three years with Jesus. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He was there on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walked out. He saw Lazarus raised from the dead. He has seen this, and yet he cannot believe in the resurrection. He disbelieves that it happened. He feels that all this following Jesus was for nothing. I'm a fool. Why have I done this for the last three years? And it's no different than us. One of the greatest validities, by the way, of the Bible concerning the resurrection of Christ is that nobody believed especially his own followers. You would think if you're making up a lie to write this account, you're going to include that, oh, we believed all along and it, it was validated. They didn't believe. They weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. That same disbelief is within all of us. All of us have that same propensity to be skeptical of the claims of Christ, skeptical of the death and the resurrection of Christ. But something shifted for these disciples from disbelief to belief. And what caused that jump was none other than an encounter with the risen Christ himself. It was overwhelming proof of his resurrection to them. And then when you consider the empty tomb, the fact that he appeared to the women, he appeared to... Um, the over 500 people who saw his resurrected body in Jerusalem. And now here he appears to them in this upper room. Luke's account tells us that Jesus sits in and has fish with them. This is not some hologram that's manifesting itself to him. This is a real body consuming real food, enjoying real fellowship with these disciples and they're convinced. And so these disciples immediately leave the room in verse 25 because they've got a mission. They need to go find Thomas. They got to tell him we've seen him and they find him and they, they, they declare we have seen the resurrected Christ. But notice Thomas's response at the end of verse 25, even with the eyewitnesses of his own friends, 
He says, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and I put my hand into those marks and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now that phrase, I will never believe, it is in the most emphatic negative construction in the Greek, original Greek language. It is literally saying, I will never, ever believe unless I see it for myself. I will not. Now keep that in mind because Jesus is going to circle back to that here in just a little bit. But what happens in the next few verses is so incredibly beautiful. I want to show you real quick this Easter morning just three simple truths contained within this text that Jesus wants us to see both for the believer and the doubters among us. And that is that Jesus wants to meet us in our doubts. Jesus then wants to move us to belief. And then Jesus in that belief wants to give us everlasting life. Notice first, Jesus wants to meet us in our doubts. Watch now as Jesus, not condemningly, but lovingly and truthfully moves towards Thomas to meet him in the midst of his doubts. We see this in verse 26 and following. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. So eight days later, one week later now, back in the same room that they were before, only this time Thomas is with them this time, and Jesus reappears. Only this time he does so for the sole benefit of Thomas. I love what this communicates, by the way, about Jesus' heart for those who doubt. He didn't have to do this. There are so many eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony that's out there. Jesus doesn't have to make this special trip. He doesn't even have to show him his wounds. But I want you to note, he does. He moves towards him. And I want you to see here in that text, Thomas doesn't even get a chance to ask to see the wounds. Remember, Jesus wasn't even there a week ago when the disciples were telling Thomas, and Thomas said, no. I've got to put my hands in in those wounds or I'll never believe. Jesus wasn't there. Thomas doesn't even ask, how does Jesus know? This is his sovereign omniscience. He already is familiar with the the, the, the doubts and disbeliefs that are in Thomas's heart. And he anticipates them in advance. And Jesus is now going out of his way to engage with Thomas's doubts and invite him into his own investigation into the proof of Christ's resurrection. Why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus loves him. Do not miss this. This loving disposition that Christ has towards those who struggle with disbelief has not changed in 2,000 years. He loves and longs to meet with his skeptics. He loves to engage in the doubts and disbeliefs that we have. Jesus loves us enough to meet us right where we are. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 
Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. The risen Christ demonstrates to us in this scene that we can trust him with our doubts. And and notice how gentle he is with Thomas in this scene. He doesn't visit Thomas just so he can shame him and condemn him for his disbelief. He doesn't show up in the room and slap him upside the head and go, what's wrong with you, boy? Been walking together for three years and this is how you're gonna treat me? Come on, he doesn't do that. No, he patiently moves towards him and lovingly leads him towards the undeniable proofs that he was doubting. And I think in this moment, we learn of Jesus what Isaiah foretold about the Messiah and how he would handle us in Isaiah 42 when he said, a a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus doesn't long to take your disbeliefs and just extinguish you altogether and just blow out the wick and be done with you. No, whatever your doubts, whatever your disbeliefs, Jesus longs to move towards you in them and patiently invite you into an investigation that would lead towards belief. So what we learn here is you don't have to take your doubts and disbeliefs to the world. You don't have to take your doubts and disbeliefs straight onto Twitter. You can trust Jesus and you can take your doubts and disbeliefs directly to him and he is big enough for them. Now that being said, understand this, doubt still is disbelief. Somehow we have gotten to the point in our day, especially within the church, where praise God we've recognized it's okay to wrestle and know that Christ is gonna meet us in the wrestlings of doubt, but we've gotten to the point where we like to celebrate our doubts and we like to celebrate these disbeliefs. We kind of wear them now as a moniker uh, and a badge of vulnerability and, and a mark of authenticity. We've even heard about people throwing doubt parties to celebrate that doubt, but remember, doubt is still disbelief. And in this context, willful, hardened disbelief, such as Thomas has emphatically demonstrated, is still disobedience. And while Jesus will not condemn Thomas's disbelief, but neither will he condone it either. While Jesus is faithful to patiently and lovingly meet us in our doubts, his desire is to not leave us there. It is to, and this is where I want you to see the second thing Jesus wants us to know, to move us to belief, from disbelief to belief. You see that at the very end of verse 27, when Jesus exhorts Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas then answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says, all right, Thomas, evidence has been shown now. I have truly died on the cross for your sins and I have truly raised from the grave to give you new life. I am as real to you now as I was three days ago and in fact, ever more real now in my resurrected body. So now, Thomas, a decision has to be made. In your heart and in your life, you have to move from disbelieving to believing. When speaking to the church 
at Rome concerning what salvation entails, Paul unashamedly says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And in this moment, Thomas does just that. He moves from disbelief to belief. We're not even sure if Thomas even touched his wounds like he said he had to. Jesus indicates in verse 29 that he merely only saw them, but it didn't even matter at this point because his encounter with the risen Christ was so real, it was so profound that his heart shifted to belief. And he exclaims, one of the greatest proclamations, one of the greatest declarations, one of the most concise statements of the deity of the Savior, Jesus Christ, when he exclaims, my Lord, my God. To confess that Jesus is God is to affirm that Jesus was indeed the one with the all-powerful He's the all-powerful creator who has unlimited jurisdiction over life and death. To confess that Jesus is Lord means that he is indeed the promise-keeping savior who came to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, who came to rise from the dead so that we could be made new, and who is now ruling and reigning over all other names in heaven and earth. And so this is Thomas now emphatically saying, I am convinced that you have died for my sins and have risen from the grave for new life. And I am all in. And you go, what is it that can shift someone from emphatic disbelief in verse 25 to now emphatic belief in verse 28? And it is none other than an encounter with the risen Christ. Some of you have been standing on the shores of disbelief your entire life, overlooking the ocean of belief and not knowing how to get there. In this moment, in this text, on this day, Jesus is bidding you to step off those shores of disbelief and dive in to the ocean of belief. Yes, examine the claims of Jesus. Explore the undeniable proof that he has given us through these eyewitness testimonies, through his word and in life. But at some point, you have to believe. And what belief is, is believing, first of all, what we confessed Friday night after reading from Romans chapter seven, that we are wretched. What a wretched man or woman that we are. We are sinners who have been separated from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And we are in need of a savior. And that savior is not found in our religious works because that would be credit to us. It's not found in showing up here on Easter as if that checks off some balance in your account this morning. Again, it has nothing to do with us. Our savior has to come from outside of us. Someone who is like us, but not like us. Who has not sinned. 
His name is Jesus Christ, believing that God sent his only son because of the love in which he loved you and for his own glory to send Jesus Christ to die on a cross to absorb the wrath that we deserved, the penalty of our sin, which is death, so that we, through his shed blood on that cross, can be atoned for, to be forgiven of our sins, and that he would raise from the dead the vindication of the Father, saying that our debt is indeed paid off. It is affirmed by God when he has risen from the dead, being made new and all who are in him will be like him as well, made new as well. And one day he will return and he will remove all sin and evil from this planet. He will make all things new and we will be with him for all eternity. It is believing that Jesus is Lord, confessing that with your mouth, that he raised from the dead and you will be saved. That is belief. But understand, belief in this context is not mere intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing cognitively with your mind with a historicity of Jesus, believing that he's a real person who lived, but rather true salvific belief is the full expression of trust in the person and work of Jesus that manifests itself in total surrender of your life to Jesus Christ in all things. Where you aren't any longer seeking to reorient Jesus around your life, but you are now seeking to reorient your entire life around Jesus. And I want you to notice in verse 29, Jesus says that Thomas is uniquely blessed because he had Christ's physical proof right in front of his eyes. Remember what Thomas said in verse 25, unless I see it, I will never believe. And Jesus is so merciful to let him see it and let him believe. But Jesus makes a comment here where he says, however, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. That's not an indictment to Thomas, but that is letting him know that we are about to change movements here. No longer is belief just going to be secured by Jesus manifesting himself to every one of us as we wish he would in person. But from this point forward, belief is gonna come on the witness testimony that is going to be preached for the next 2,000 years and counting. And Jesus says, blessed are you in this room, you and I, who believe him today, even though we haven't seen him. Peter affirmed this, even in his day. First Peter chapter one says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining now the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus wants you to move from disbelief to belief. Lastly, though, what we see in this text, we are promised here that when true belief is embraced, then true life is then received. Jesus not only wants to meet us in our doubts, move us to belief, but wants to give us everlasting life. See this in verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And listen to this. And that by believing 
you may have life in his name. These last two verses are actually John, the apostle's way of closing out this entire letter that he wrote. Chapter 21 is really an epilogue. But as John lands the plane on his gospel, these words are his commentary on the whole purpose of Jesus coming and doing everything that he did, all the miracles that are recorded in this book for one purpose, so that you and I would believe. John is wanting you to believe in Jesus. Jesus is wanting you to believe in Jesus. But the outcome of believing is that you and I might have life in his name. Now, you wouldn't pick this up in your English translation, but there are two prominent words that are used for life over and over in the New Testament in the Greek language. One of those is the word bios. We get the term biology from it. It simply means physical life, physical existence. But that is not the word that is used here by John. The word that is used here is the Greek word zoe. Think zoe. It is supernatural life. It is abundant life. It is full life. It is joyful life, meaningful life, indestructible life, life that never ends, that goes on forever. We would call it eternal life, everlasting life. Let's be honest. This is the life we're all searching for, isn't it? The fountain of youth, if only we could find it. All the money we're willing to invest to make us feel young, to give us comfort. Everything we're searching for of what is true, good, and beautiful. But nobody's looking for mere bios. Nobody's writing songs today or going into Hobby Lobby and grabbing signs to put on your living room wall that says, just exist. Grab life by the horns and just breathe and live and do nothing. Nobody's looking for that kind of life. We don't want that kind of life. Nobody wants that. We want life that is to the full. You know how I know that? Because last week, over 210,000 citizens of Dallas, Texas, filed into the AT&T Stadium looking for Zoe in the form of Taylor. They're called Swifties. Some of them are among us today. You know who you are. Oh, and they thought heaven was there. They came clothed in white, boots and skirts. They had their arms stretched out in worship, crying and hysteria and speaking in tongues. People were getting baptized. It was glorious. But you know what? It still wasn't Zoe. You know how I know that? It's because it ended. The next day, AT&T was empty. Tay-Tay was gone. <laughs> Getting ready for monster truck next. So that just gets replaced that quick. Jesus promises us. And John reminds us in verse 31 that the kind of life, the true life that we are looking for, the life that never ends, can't be found anywhere else outside of Jesus Christ. It's a life that begins with a new heart, a new mind, a new joy, and one day, even a new body, just as Jesus. And because he eternally lives, so will all those whose faith is in him in true belief. 
You know what old doubting Thomas? He actually didn't doubt for very long. It's actually a, la- uh, a, a label that the Bible never gives him. We give it to him. But it really wasn't that way. Once his disbelief turned to belief in the undeniable proof of the risen Savior, Thomas tasted Zoe. And he went on to have a life that was marked by full surrender. And in fact, there is a man by the name of Origen from Alexandria who lived just one generation after the disciples. And he wrote in that first century that Thomas went on to be one of the first missionaries in India, planting churches in the name of Jesus Christ. And when he was asked to recant his profession in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ or else be speared to death, he was so convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ so convinced that having Zoe in Christ far outweighed having Bios in India, that he took the spears and he gave his own life in full faith of the one he knew had given his life for him. Old doubting Thomas turned out to not be so doubting after all. He believed to the very end. How about you? How about us? If you have yet to put your faith in the risen Christ, what a more glorious day to do so than today. To know that your Savior loves you and longs to meet with you in your disbelief. He's big enough to shoulder your doubts, your disbeliefs. And his desire is to move you this morning to belief so that by believing in him, you may have life and life to the full starting right now and on into eternity long past your death. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder that Jesus Christ has risen. Lord, there is nothing else we can do today. No egg hunt, no brunch, no nothing that is worth the full joy and celebration of knowing that our Savior lives. And God, for any of us in this room who are doubting, oh Lord, may they be encouraged today to know that there is a Savior who longs to meet with them in that disbelief. And may, Lord, they have such an encounter by investigating for themselves the undeniable proof of his resurrection that you would open their eyes to believe, that they may turn from doubt to belief and that by believing may have life in his name. Lord, embolden us that we, like Thomas, might leave this place today and go give our lives in full surrender of the one who surrendered everything for us. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.